Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Toby Clark. Toby is the director and founder of Vigo Gallery, a contemporary art gallery right here in London. Toby, very warm welcome to you this morning and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Morning. Morning, Toby. Pleasure having you. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. Now, leadership, I think, is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and the need for this generation of business leaders, of course, to feel their way through what is ultimately an unprecedented crisis. So for somebody working within the arts industry, such as yourself, how has it been attempting to navigate these last few months? Because I can imagine the challenges have been tremendous for you. I think they've um, they've unveiled themselves, you know, on a on a almost weekly basis. Um, I was in uh, New York in in March, and it was it was you know right at the beginning of March, and and that was an incredibly sort of crucial time when the world actually seemed to turn on it turn on its head, and the the moment where many more people, certainly within my industry, realised you know what what was what was coming up and, and the challenges we were going to face because, um, you know, I was at an art fair and I had, uh, you know, thousands of people coming towards me uh, every hour um, with the awareness of, of, of what was happening. And, you know, it really was, you know, novel experience of how to deal and, and interact with people, um, you know, with this sort of, um, you know, unknown dimension basically, which you, one was going to have to deal with. So, you know, on returning to, to England, it, it became sort of quite clear to me the, the seriousness of everything. And, um, and you know, we've had to react on a sort of uh, weekly basis since then. You know, obviously our industry is, um, certainly from my, my side of it, is, is very um, dependent on, on travel. So as a small business, I think we were... Um, in the first six months of last year, uh, the second most prolific gallery in the world, despite only having uh, four staff, um, in terms of a- attending these fairs. So we were going to you know, Mexico, New York, LA, and we would go there. And that's where we would meet, you know, that's where we would export our, our goods, really. You know, we'd, um, it's a very social thing, the art world, and it's very much dependent on um, the excitement of the opening of exhibitions and the opening of art fairs. And people put it into their calendar. So all this has been sort of uh, uh, something which is a you know a large proportion of our business, which has been sort of uh, taken away, and and for quite a long time was unsure for the planning for the future as well. So many art fairs, um, you know, did hold back for quite a long time because obviously it means a, a huge amount to them to to be able to fulfil on on having their fair. And uh, I think a lot of them had a lot of problems with insurance and whether they'd be covered or not. So they really held out to to the last moments in order to um, try and uh, see if they could still proceed. And some did and some didn't. But, you know, obviously there's been some, uh, you know, consequences to um, affairs that um, I think in Maastricht, a lot of people um, uh, caught COVID. Um, of the dealers um, who were there, and I think you know, really the last the last fair that was safe or relatively safe was probably that New York fair, um, 
but yes, it's it's um, the the art world has been turned on on its head, um, and you know we've had to adapt to that, and we've we've done it by um, you know basically uh, observing what's happening, you know, paying attention to you know all the medical facts and um, and thinking about what the the next future is, not not the you know next month or the month after, but how it's going to change. So. I suppose to that degree, we've been looking at things like virtual reality. Um, so we um, we launched about uh, a month ago now, um, working with a company called Emperia, um, a virtual reality gallery, which is a fantasy gallery, basically. It, it's sort of a cross between um, uh, the Long Museum in Shanghai and uh, the outside of the Parkland of Rye. But... Um, our reaction to that that we got from the art newspaper was in, in incredible. They, you know, said it showed how a small gallery can rebalance, um, you know, the sort of power relationship or the or the structures within within an industry. Um, and uh, you know, they they praised it as being, you know, um, uh, you know, particularly um, good reaction to this whole sort of situation. That said, you know, it's very hard to know how you know. It's great to have that praise. And great mm-hmm. to have people coming to see it and, and journalists following it, but it's how it actually um, translates into into business. Because as everyone has found out, it's the fixed costs during a time like this um, that really uh, are damaging to a business. So, you know, from our end, we're just um, you know we've been quite careful not to um, alienate our clients who might be suffering or, or in, you know have have loved ones who are ill or. Um, but when when we have had inquiries, which um, actually surprisingly there are still a lot of in, inquiries in, in, in the art world, um, you know we really try and uh, you know service that client really well and you know um, pay as much attention as, as as we can to them, and that has helped us helped us uh, through. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're spending a lot of time just thinking about where we're going to be as opposed to where we are now um, mm. whilst trying to keep it ticking over. I think there are some incredibly important things to take away from that. I find it interesting that there are things that you're exploring like virtual reality. So there are some themes of this lockdown period, if you will, that are going to become a more permanent thing as we sort of move into the uh, the new normal. And it's going to affect how we ultimately have our working practices, how we operate and run business in this country. Um, but having to adapt to this new reality, that experience of sort of crisis management, if you will, would you say, Toby, that you've really learned anything from this quite difficult and quite tragic time as well? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm learning things as, as I go along, I think, um, because, you know, always in times of change, if you, if you, you know, that's when interesting things can also you know, come about. But I suppose I've, I mean, I've learned the bits of the art world, which I, I, I personally, you know, I mean, I'm lucky to be a, you know, a small, but, you know, relatively successful um, gallery in the, in, in the past. And um, I, I think, you know, you know, the things which are good about, you know, one's industry and which aren't. And, um, you know, there's, there's aspects of the art world that I absolutely uh, adore and find fascinating and exciting, and, and others that I don't. And, and quite honestly, the, the huge amount of international travel and uh, also, um, you know, the effect on the environment of shipping things all, all the way around the world, um, you know, 
that did need to be looked at in in, in certain ways. And obviously, I, I, I long for a return to um, some sort of normality, but I don't think it's I don't think it's going to happen in the short to medium term. And so, um, you know, I, I suppose one just just stands back and looks at everything, looks at the cost, looks at the um, you know, look, look at the marketing, look at the relationships with artists. You know, for example, you know, we tend to represent artists exclusively, like Ibrahim El Salahi for Salahi. Um, he's the top African artist of the 20th century, had a shirt, Tate Modern. You know, someone like him, we represent exclusively, and that, that works in, in, incredibly well. And, um, you know, he's at a level where, you know, we can do that. But with a lot of young artists now that we represent, you know, it's a realization that actually I'm not going to be in New York or LA as much as I would have been, you know, to, to go and represent them. So I will have to collaborate more with other galleries and, uh, you know, in order to represent the artists. But, um, you know, it, it does show many faults within the system because, um, you know, the way contemporary art works is, is that, you know, you represent the artist and, you invest in that artist. But one of the biggest problems for me is this idea of um, investing in an artist at a very young stage of a career um, where it's unprofitable. You then work with them over a period of time to get to the profitable stage. But the problem is that um, it is a very competitive world, the art world, and a big gallery will come and snoop the, <laughs> the artist after you've done all the hard work. So it's a bit like doing all the research and development, um, you know, for a, for a um, consumer product, um, but not being able to uh, have, have control of it further down. So, it's, so I suppose what I've, um, in, a, in a roundabout way, I'm, I'm saying, you know, the, the systems and from both angles, how you represent an artist and um, will have to change in order to, to work for both gallery and artist. Or, you know, I mean, it might be that galleries, you know, cease to exist in the way that they've existed before. Um, but I think basically everyone, you know, all the constituent parts need to look at how they can work together to be successful uh, going forward, really. Um, and I think, you know, that will, will throw up so many exciting avenues. Um, and then if, if things like fairs come, come back and if... Um, you know, international travel comes back to the point that, you know, because it is very much a relationship business, um, then that becomes, you know, the industry becomes, you know, more supercharged at that point in that, you know, you have the old methods, but you also have these new methods. And, and, and quite frankly, the art world is quite old fashioned in, in, in many ways compared to other industries. And so, you know, for us doing this, you know, virtual reality gallery and getting the response we got from it, um, was incredible, but in a way, if it was in the fashion world or um, in uh, you know I don't know record sales or whatever, it would um, it, it, it wouldn't seem to be such a big step, I don't think. But um, you know, for, for us, it's exciting to see. And you know, I'm looking into all sorts of virtual viewing rooms and uh, uh, other technology in order to help. Um, you know, bridge bridge these gaps in in communication, and there's some you know, great fairs doing interesting things. There's the Untitled Art Fair; they're about to launch a, a virtual fair where you can sort of walk around the fair with other people. And I, I, I do think it's you know people need to up their game because 
the initial reaction of the industry was just to put web pages up and call them, you know, um, virtual galleries. And so, so many people went to see these these virtual galleries and then were disappointed and bored by them because they were just, you know, images on the screen. So I think, you know, we've all got to we've all got to be as dynamic as possible. And you know, hopefully, the government can, you know help with in investing in sort of new technologies and new ways of doing things. And specifically our government, you know, we've got, you know, Brexit going on um, in, the, in the context of all this. But, you know, actually the art world has a great opportunity. We had um, something called Dwight Street Artist Retail, right, which um, particularly made New York more competitive than, than London, despite, you know, the art scene in London being one of our most successful you know, exports and industries. Um, and, you know, perhaps that that sort of taxation uh, may change to a more, you know, more competitive format um, now that, you know, we're not reliant on being part of the, the EU system, for, just for example. I mean, I'm not sure what the, what mm. the, um, what, what the end solution is, but it, it, it's better that it's not, doesn't cost a couple of percent more to sell in, uh, in London than it does in in New York, and it seems quite a simple thing that the the government could do to to help. But um, uh, and then to help artists in in a actually more fruitful way, um, because they're, they're, I mean, one thing I am very worried about is is museums and uh, opportunity. I mean, before in England there were relatively um, few opportunities because the arts were so underfunded for, for you know emerging artists to get these stepping stones that are so crucial to their their careers by showing in public um, and so for a long time I've been looking at um, an idea whereby uh, artworks are donated to museums and that the museums actually apply to the galleries and um, to, to have a work but the work is made free for them because they have they don't have the funding to be able to do it and it's uh, you know I had um, with um, a long time ago with a sort of hero of mine, Francis Morris, who's now in charge of um, Tate Modern. You know, I had a series of, you know, conversations with her whilst we were uh, traveling where, um, you know, she was saying that there was basically, you know, a, a, a gap in the collecting of the country for contemporary art. And, you know, due to just, you know, economic um, economic reasons, really, um, to do with not being able to be a session, to do with having to make the right decision because you don't want to have to store something forever if, if you if, if it's not quite important enough. So I've been coming up with a, a sort of a plan, almost like the recycle logo sign that if, if you adopt this sign or this hashtag, that you are prepared for, um, you, you make an agreement with the artist and the gallery uh, that one of the works will be made available to a museum or public institutions or public building that wants to apply for it and for me it's a it's a it's a, it's a way of people working together for mutual benefits so the artist benefits because they get a um they get this stepping stone in the marketing um the uh the country benefits because if if enough people do this a huge amount of artworks will go into public collections and you know i'm i'm sort of including you know, basketball town hall as well as you know, Tate or Manchester City Gallery or, or whatever in, in terms of the potential outlets because what what will happen with less funding is that there'll be less opportunities for, for the arts, less, mm. um, you know, less of a priority. And, and therefore, if there's a way which is mutually beneficial to someone who's, you know, commercial 
like myself, you know, I'm, I want to sell paintings. It helps me to sell paintings um, if my artists are getting into more museum collections. And if they're not getting in because of money, then there's bound to be some sort of middle ground, which is mutually, you know, beneficial. Um, and, and therefore, anyway, this is it's a, it's a project I'm doing going to start off in in rye and uh see if it see if it has legs but um every every person in this sort of museum world i've talked to about it seems to think it's exciting and you know so for me these these strange little things might come to you know fruition which i might not have had time to do before but you know now i'm thinking about all the different ways that that we can sort of progress and uh i suppose during this this time with the lockdown i i've wanted to at least tread water but push push um push out some ideas and see see if they would if they'll stick and um so i'm, I'm working you know in, on that project with someone called art uk who are in you know talking about sort of funding and everything like that they are an amazing charity that's the only um we're, we're the only country that's digitized all of our national collection and these guys are responsible for it so um we're going to work with them to disseminate these exhibitions to 3,500 curators around the country and, you know, basically offering them, you know, to apply for art and, uh, you know, for a specific artwork and just say the reason why they, why they want it. So it, it saves a lot of, lot of time, but also, um, you know, it's going to, I'm really looking forward to sort of helping someone like art. UK, um, who will be obviously helping us enormously in, in, in this project, but they've they've agreed to to work with us and to disseminate this information to write articles. But um, it's just so important that people um, that that the museums are able to keep going in in some sort of way. And I'm sure it's a, a convergence of interests in a in a you know, in a tasteful, respectful way that will help them to to, to do that. It certainly seems like there's some exciting plans on the horizon amid all of the um, uncertainty for sure, Toby. And on the issue of funding, of course, just for the benefit of those listening in, we are recording on the 6th of July 2020. And the government has, of course, announced uh, very recently a £1.57 billion support package for the arts sector. So that's, of course, going to be very significant in helping it through the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. But before we just wrap things up, uh, Toby, because I'm conscious that we are short on time, what do you think the future is really going to bring for the industry as a whole um, over the course of the next sort of 12 to 18 months? Um, I, I think there will be um, consolidation. I think um, I, I think that uh, in, a, in today's world, often it's the, the sort of um, the hot artists who get the attention and that will, that will continue. I mean, there's some, uh, without sort of going into another thing, there's some amazing initiatives like Artist Support Pledge, which is really helping um, artists who who might, you know, teach to get their normal income or, um, and it's set up by a guy called Matthew Burroughs. And it's, they've sold something crazy, like 30 million pounds worth of art, all at 200 pounds a pop. And it's a whole internal uh, sort of like market of generosity where where artists will, um, sell five five works and then they'll buy another artist's work, but collectors can buy it as well. And it's it's a, like an alternative economy. So it'd be really interesting to see how that works. But that's not gonna that's not gonna save the industry or or you know or be 
long-term sustainable for many artists. But what what it, I, I just think a lot of these things will emerge and start to and and create little um, you know pockets of success. And I think um, you know, but there, there will be a, an absolute move to online um, and experience, basically. And I do think. Despite the one of the problems with it being, you know, that it's so much based on relationships and sociability, I actually think those key relationships will become so important over the next, you know, twelve to eighteen months. And it's just important that we really value the people. You know, we value our our clients, the, the collectors. We value the artists. We value our relationships, and we try to keep these relationships intact because we won't have the same mechanisms for seeing um, each other. You know, uh, or thousands of colleagues that you, you, um, you know we won't be in touch with. You know, physically, uh, we have to sort of try and figure out ways to to, to keep in touch because everything relies on everything else. But um, I, I, you know, I, I, every every month it changes basically, and so I'm I'm just looking at it, you know a month at a time and uh, trying to be clever about what what we do and. Um, you know, uh, it's it's not ideal. <laughs> no, it's certainly not. And it is a really uncertain time for the um, industry, despite mm. it being a period of change. And, you know, if, of course, it's one thing speculating, Toby, on what that future might bring with it under the, uh, the new normal. But it's another entirely, of course, waiting for the time to come and then looking back and reflecting on just exactly what has happened. So given how informative it's been for myself and for the listeners having you join us today uh, to discuss these issues, I actually think it would be fantastic to perhaps have you back on the air with us in a few months' time just to see exactly what has changed and what state the industry is in at that point. I'd, I'd love to do that, yes. That would that, that, be great. And, um, uh, and it will, you know, I'll have a whole load of different answers for you by then uh, because, you know, it will have, it will have changed again and uh, and I'd be very interested to do that. That's fantastic to hear, Toby, because it has been a real pleasure having you join us this morning. And most importantly, until we do touch base in future, do take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with the COVID-19 situation as of yet. I think that's for certain. You, you, you too. And, you know, thank you, you know, for, for taking an interest in, in us and, uh, you know, our industry and um, it's much appreciated. That was Toby Clark speaking, director and founder of Vigo Gallery in London. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and all of that is coming up next. Uh, We're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on today. uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me, realise that I did uh, 
score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where... Um, so Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, they, they quite always mention, when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd work with. So you're very... Fortunate, I think you, you you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and uh, a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood, and of course a, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that caliber can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at. West Ham uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players, and of course they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peters? I think probably. Well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, mm-hmm. again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain. Um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. And what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier he played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in 
by initial reaction, people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, especially with South Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a, a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. he, in that era I was involved for six or seven years, he it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time at maybe overly strict by the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn suit and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh... A, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, South so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing. In, in the team, but uh, in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, 
on Jimmy Lee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out, mm. out. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important, to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that, that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who. 
who asked the question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I, again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make then again, laugh if you that put, day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see this happened when you must have realized that people teammates began looking at you for leadership um is that something that occurred to you or did you just realize that by by quick one way or the other people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration well possibly that's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now quite frankly that's a new a new question mm. does anybody look up to me I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of the fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch, is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm-hmm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely, probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um. Well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude. is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but... There's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck that's absolutely leadership he'd be the best example of course in in football terms today Uh, easily easily and of course going back not that long ago Alex Ferguson who's just absolutely Mm. 
you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone, how they, they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen. And I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing. Astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, well, the, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that, that was outstanding and, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath, and there was nobody. And I, going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish. After '66, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding, and I think that was. A big part, I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was, and I've said that many, many times, for the success of the team. We have some great players, it, we have some great players, of course, but without the attitude uh, alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the, the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts, but with it. Yes, the word, the, word is team, the, word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that—that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking—if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single minded. Uh, Single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job, 
um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, wait, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.